On May 6, 2023, the year of our Lord, Charles III was crowned king. Here to talk about that, as well as his new and fascinating book, is Dr. Joseph Shaw. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Welcome, everyone, to the One Peter Five podcast, Rebuilding Christendom, Restoring Catholic Culture and Tradition. I'm Timothy Flanders, Editor-in-Chief at One Peter Five. I'm very happy to be joined by Dr. Joseph Shaw, one of our contributing editors. Dr. Shaw, it is a pleasure and an honor. Thank you very much. And if viewers don't know, many many Catholics in these states are familiar with the great, the late, great Michael Davies. And Dr. Shaw is the successor to Michael Davies at the Una Voce. You're the, you're the head of the Una Voce. You're the head of the Latin Mass Society of England and Wales. And th this latest text is very much added to a, a very important aspect of the traditional apologia, which I think was very much missing. So we're going to get into that. But first, let's talk about the coronation. There's been uh, a number of different comments on that um, from, again, traditional Catholics from these United States. Um, Dr. Shaw, tell us about uh, your comments, your understanding of this ceremony, which was rather unique in terms of his Catholic involvement. Uh, what are your thoughts and comments on it so far? The British coronation service, which we've just witnessed, is a, a unique survival of a medieval Catholic coronation liturgy. And it's all the more remarkable that it survived in a context which is not institutionally Catholic. It survived in the context of, of Anglicanism. Um, if you look at the Catholic monarchies which exist in Belgium, Spain, um, and so on, uh, they don't have a, a ceremony like that uh, for various reasons. They just they have their installation is more like the swearing in of a, of a, of a secular president so it has particular value as a witness to that tradition uh, and i'm a bit well i'm not puzzled by, by american criticisms of this because americans have their own political tradition to which they're entirely entitled um, and i think it's a good thing that they feel strongly identified with the principles of their own constitution. I don't think that's a bad thing at all. It's a good thing. I think it's part of what gives any political community cohesion is that you rally around the things that, you know, your, your shared symbols. So um, nevertheless, I do think that we should have a bit of, uh, a, a, a bit of charity about other people's symbols and why they're important for them. Um, and just as I would say about the Japanese monarchy, that its symbols, which are not Christian, are important for the Japanese, a sense of solidarity, a sense of identity, and so on. Um, so obviously the British symbols are important for Britain. Uh, Britain is a complex country. It's made up, as you know, of England and uh, Scotland and part of Ireland and Wales and so on. And it's, it's, it's partly because of that complexity, including religious complexity since the Reformation, that it's important to have a very strong set of unifying symbols. Um, and I think that perhaps one of the reasons, not the only reason, but one of the reasons that the Scandinavian monarchies, so uh, 
Norway and Sweden and stuff. They they have a very very stripped down um, ceremonies and, and and understanding of of the role of the monarchy. Well, part of the reason for that is because they're very homogenous societies. Uh, they're totally Lutheran, uh, for example. Uh, no Catholic remnant was left after the Reformation. Um, they don't have big immigration. Uh, immigrant uh, populations. They don't have uh, sort of odd little bits of, of other countries which were previously dependent, all those sorts of things. Um, they do have quite a complex history, but it, it, it's nevertheless what they've ended up with is, is, is quite homogenous. They don't need something complicated. Well, we do. Uh, and the Americans do too. So in a different way, in a different way, the Americans need uh, a complex set of ceremonies. And I think that some people think it's very strange in America that you have all this stuff about the flag, all this stuff about the constitution, where you're always banging on about the constitution, always waving flags around it, and having a great reverence for the flag and, and, and sort of strange ceremonies, which other countries wouldn't have about revolving around you know, the tomb of the unknown soldier and things like that, and the sort of enormous concern about veterans and enormous concern about men in uniform. Uh, British soldiers don't wear uniform unless they're on duty. <laughs> um, I remember being amazed flying an internal flight in America, and and uh, the hostess said to this chapter, "Would you like to upgrade to first class with an empty seat?" And he said, "Is there anyone in uniform on the aircraft?" He wants to give way to a uniform member of military personnel. Uh, that was just staggering to me. I mean, no, I, was, I was impressed. I thought it was great, <laughs> but it was something that you just don't get elsewhere. Now, why do you have all that stuff? Because these are important to America. Those things that I've mentioned are what give unity and solidarity, identity to the American political community. And it needs it because we all need it. Every political community needs it. And American political community is not going to get it from religion. They're not all Catholics or Lutherans or Buddhists or anything else. Of course, they're not. They're not going to get it from ethnic uh, common ancestry or shared cultural traditions. They have to get it from these uh, institutions which are relatively young. Uh, and they look from the outside a bit artificial even. Um, but look, guys, we get it from this. We get it from the monarchy, from this stuff about what Britain has in common, which is above politics. Yes. Well, this is that's a stirring uh, defense, and I, I certainly appreciate your translating that into the American context because many of residents of these states do not understand or appreciate at all, to the slightest, rather to the contrary. And uh, we talk about in your book, and we will do that in a minute, about the immense reverence that is given to the liturgical rites and symbols, and not only that, but the, as you mentioned, the Japanese, the church gives great reverence to the, the pre-Christian customs of a society. How much more reverence shall we give to a, a distinctly Catholic ceremony that is survived, nevertheless, in a Anglican context, secularized, of course, and there's liberal elements and whatnot. Um, any comments on some of the um, strange things that went on or um any any of the any of the things that people found very offensive uh that they've commented on um how do we get over those things 
Uh, well, what, what did people find offensive? What do you think? I, I've been a little bit involved in the kind of social. Media okay, okay. Stuff well, I mean, I, much, perhaps. I have not. Uh, I, I hate. I hate conversations on Twitter, so I, I, I avoid them. <laughs> but I've noticed. I mean, there's, you know, female, arch lay women. Uh, there's uh, the the Catholic involvement. The cardinal was involved actually in the ceremony itself. Yes. Uh, which appeared to be a sort of Vatican II kumbaya experience. Uh, however, I, I I noted when that comment surfaced that there there is actually a unique traditional Catholic viewpoint regarding this whole thing called post 1688 England um, and and how the church has traditionally dealt with that. Um, so those are some of the things that, that came to mind. But any thoughts? Yeah. There? Well, uh, England has a a, a a tradition which is which is unusual. Um, in, in, in the prayers for the king or queen at the end of mass. So uh, from a very early date, corresponding to the beginning of Catholic emancipation, the end of the 18th century. So um, after 1688, we had a pretty tough time, uh, not a return to a, a bloody persecution, but a bloodless persecution. Um, and that began to change at the end of, at the, end of the, the uh, 18th century. Um, and in gratitude for that, we started praying for the king at the end of mass. Now, I we must have, I say we, the bishops at that time must have had permission from the Pope because normally those prayers are only given to Catholic monarchs. So this is a expression of the peculiar relationship we have with the monarchy as Catholics in this country. So uh, as, as, as many listeners will know, Catholics have historically been accused of being traitors. Yes, yeah, one of the accusations made against us, so that we have a, a split loyalty. Um, and that makes slightly more sense um, if you think of the papacy as a temporal power, uh, if you think of the Spanish uh, superpower uh, status, and then the French superpower status in, in Europe. Um, as being kind of representing the Catholic uh, ideology. Um, of course, that was very simplistic, but that it was in those simplistic terms that this polemic was carried on. So Catholics um, had to decide either, well, you, you could in theory kind of support a kind of Spanish invasion or a French invasion, but that, and frankly, that wasn't going to happen after the fail, failure of the Armada, certainly. And even before then, people were very reluctant to, to actually get on board with that because they didn't actually want a Spanish uh, kind of colonization uh of england we have our own political traditions and you know we'll sort out our own problems thank you very much yeah <laughs> so um so it became a kind of catchy thing for catholics to protest their loyalty um and uh, one of the one of the things that you read about catholic uh, recusants the catholic surviving catholics during during those that, that period uh, of the um after 1688 is that the lengths they went to to, to do this so for example it was impossible to, as a Catholic, to take um, to, to become an officer in the army uh, under the Hanoverians. So Catholic gentlemen used to travel sometimes to Hanover. So the Hanover was the, the German dominion of the Hanoverian kings of England. So they carried on being kings of Hanover until Queen Victoria, because in Hanoverian law, she couldn't inherit because she was a woman. So during that period, up until Queen Victoria, 
Catholics used to travel to Hanover and enlist as officers in the army of King George, whichever George it was, to serve the king as officers, receive the royal commission, because Hanoverian law did not prevent Catholics from joining the army. Now, what an extraordinary thing to do. They could then go back to England wearing a Hanoverian uniform as officers of the king. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> and this was a way of saying, look, we want to serve you. We want to take part in the political, you know, life of the, of the, of the, of the nation. And why shouldn't we? Because we are lords of the king. You know, we can serve them. We can be, you know, do things uh, alongside our Protestant, um, you know, peers. So you know, Catholic peers, Catholic lords were um, excluded from Parliament. Um, Catholic uh, squires, they couldn't, they couldn't become, you know, Catholic gentlemen. They couldn't become officers. They couldn't become magistrates. They couldn't do those things. Now, finally, that began to change. So uh, in the meantime, they've been protesting <laughs> loyalty. And, well, they were right to do that because they were English. You know, they were English. It was unfair. And the government that they had was the only government that was on offer. So while the thing was disputed, you know, with, with the Jacobite thing, well, you know, maybe there was an alternative there, but I mean, that, that phase came and went quite quickly. Mm -hmm. um, between 16, 1715 and 1745, and that was over already. There was just no prospect of that happening after that. So either you just kind of close in yourself completely, or you find a way of living with this, with this political setup as best you can, and to make the best of it. And as if you do become embraced to some extent by the by the political establishment, then you actually have an effect on that. So as Catholics became, you know, in were drawn into things, you start to see Catholic influence on things. So um we um i can't you know it's difficult to point to kind of things where you know catholics have made a huge difference because we're a very small minority mm -hmm. um, and that's something i think americans need to maybe recalibrate their thinking about it because historically i mean in recent you know last hundred years or so catholics in the united states have been a very significant minority like 25 percent the same in australia same in canada um, very different in England, you know, maybe 6%, 8% on a good day. Um, we don't have that kind of weight. We are marginal. Um, that's not to mean we're completely insignificant, but we are not, you know, there isn't a kind of big Catholic vote. We can never have a Catholic political party or anything like that. So um, perhaps the most obvious contribution of Catholics has been in the pro-life debate, uh, pro-life movement founded by people who wanted to keep Catholics out. Uh, Spark, for example, founded, we don't want Catholics taking over our movement. Of course, <laughs> five minutes later, they did take it over. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> they thought it'd be politically expedient just to have this as a kind of non, not as a Catholic organization, but it just became, it just became uh, one, uh, despite their efforts. So, um, and, um, uh, and of course, one of, the, one of the very, very odd things about 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 the whole this whole history is that the 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 premier uh, aristocrat who has a role in the coronation uh, was a Catholic, the Dukes of Norfolk, 
Oh, uh, yes. Wanted to apostatize, actually. But uh, <laughs> mostly they were Catholics. So, um, and, and you know, he was there. He was there again. Um, the um, previous Duke organized the 1953 uh, coronation, and he said that he'd organized the crossing of the Rhine during the Second World War. The <laughs> organizing the coronation should be a walk in the park. <laughs> well, that, that's... That's fascinating. And I, I, you mentioned Canada because I think of Canada as some of the most um, traditionally uh, pious Catholics venerating the monarchy, especially the Hanoverians, because of in in our history in this country, the Quebec, Quebec Act of 1774 was so critical for French Canadian Catholicism. Yeah. And it was because of King George III. So venerating a Protestant monarchy. So last question before we get into our, your book, tell us about your latest projects. One of them involves monarchy. Yes. So uh, with with uh, Sebastian Reller and James Begel, uh, uh, we're creating a, a, a collection of essays defending monarchy, specifically with a view to Catholic objections to set the monarchy into the context of a, a Catholic vision of political society um, and also to um, defend the recent British monarchs against the accusation of, of co cooperating with evil uh, and that's something which comes up again and again in these discussions is that people say um, you know Queen Elizabeth should have vetoed uh, the laws uh, liberating you know uh, making abortion possible or same-sex marriage or whatever it is um, and you know, if you love it she able to do that but actually she didn't have the constitutional power to do that um and it's it, i think a lot of this object the objections made are based on a misunderstanding an honest misunderstanding misunderstanding held by all sorts of people in fact i myself weren't wasn't clear uh, about how this worked really uh, until until um james bogle explained it because I mean, he's a constitutional lawyer and, and most people are constitutional lawyers so they simply don't know so for example i mean people may possibly have heard that the very last time there was a, a royal veto on a law um it was under queen anne um what i hadn't realized is that she did that at the request of the then government um, they passed a law and then suddenly had cold feet about it. it they thought it was real so it was a mistake because of political circumstances changing um and I think, oh my goodness what are we going to do it's nearly got the royal assent which is simply a formality um oh well perhaps we can stop it getting the royal assent and and that's what they did in fact even that is now regarded as impossible uh and and maybe it was then i mean they did it but you know maybe that wasn't really all their use of that uh, a supposed power um, but the idea that she could he or she could do it on his or her own initiative uh, and that's just fantasy after 1688 oh, okay um so the role of the monarch is like that of many officers of state um scribes uh you know people who are kind of writing the laws physically yeah, people who are kind of publishing it in the kind of official journals, uh, judges who are implementing it, um, they can't turn around and say, oh, ah, I don't like this law. Ah, I'm not going to do my function. Um, if they did, and supposing by some weird chance that they succeeded, that would be a coup. 
they would be they would be actually overthrowing the constitutional order and that would not be a good thing right well, that, that's very interesting. They'll be of great interest to many Catholics, both inside and outside the UK, of course. Um, what I so, and this is very relevant, obviously, to your book, which talks so much about lay involvement, the lay perspective. Which this yeah. is the thing that I love so much about your book is it really adds a new dimension to the traditional apologetic literature. Uh, there's a lot of theological critique. There's a lot of um, uh, you know, liturgical critique, and yours really looks at sort of the common layman, mm. the common lay family, and looks at this whole thing from their perspective, drawing out a lot of data that I, I've never seen before. I've never seen this brought to bear on these things. And I wanted to start with um, this quote that you have at the very end of your book, which I think is marvelous, on page, page 278. By the way, here, here's so here's your other book, The Case <laughs> for Liturgical Reforma uh, Restoration, a very, very excellent text um, forward by Cardinal Burke. And then if uh, viewers haven't already seen the cover here, this is published by Os Eusti, our friend over uh, Peter Kwasniewski. But uh, page 278, you say, uh, what the church needs in dealing with a unified threat is not the brittle strength of the centralized control center, but the flexible resistance of 10,000 little platoons with the self-sufficiency and initiative to carry on guerrilla warfare even when the enemy has won the big battles, what it needs, in fact, is the family. Why did popes like St. Pius X think that centralization was the way forward? It was because they could not trust local centers of authority. I was so struck by this because what, very much what we like to do, we unpack at 1 Peter 5, is the whole crisis of modernity, as you called in your title, uh, which happened before Vatican II. And Vatican II is kind of very much a symptom of other things that are going on that are problematic which you highlight right here. So comments on um, the family, the, this, the central importance. Obviously, we spend a lot of time defending the family against modern laws, but it seems like you're, you're saying that the family is really the solution, this 10,000 platoons. Tell us about that. Yes, well, the, the family, um, as, as I know, in, in that, around that passage, that the family couldn't be abolished even under Stalin. So it's... it's, it's uh, an individual family is not invincible. Um, I don't want to say that. Obviously, they can be destroyed. You send the parents to prison and then <laughs> you've, you've, you've done it. But as an institution in society, it's extraordinarily resilient. Um, the bonds within the family at a natural level are very, very powerful. And on top of that, of course, comes the supernatural bond created by the sacrament of marriage. And the baptism of the children, which which um, gives you something else in common, um, as part of the the body of Christ. Um, so it's it's the kind of the it's the one 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 aspect of it. One way of looking at it is it's the last thing which the tyrant can can capture. Um, the last thing, the last center resistance, which the which the anyone attempting to establish a tyranny. Um, can try to uh, overcome um, and and of course as people have often pointed out uh, that's exactly what's happening at the moment that, that this attempt to get into the family to separate children from their parents um, and that's also partly what happened in the 60s 
And one of the aspects of the crisis of the 60s was parent, uh, parents had a very different uh, background, cultural background from their children because their children were suddenly exposed to a different kind of schooling, perhaps universities, television, radio, pop culture, all sorts of things which didn't exist when their parents were uh, children. So that created a rupture between the generations, which had terrible, terrible consequences. Um, so <clears throat> attempts are being made to do that again uh, through basically indoctrination of children um, in school. Um, now, uh, obviously, the, the exact form this takes varies from place to place. And, and, and viewers can, can apply that idea to their own circumstances. Um, and I homeschool my children, um, not to the exclusion of any involvement at school, but to, 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 a, to a large extent. Um, and I, everyone has to decide exactly what they can do um, about that. But it's, it's what's essential to the survival of the Catholic Church as a human institution in a society is the passing on the faith from parents to children. And there are a lot of people who'd rather we didn't do that, uh, but we've got to do it. We've got to find a way of doing it and, you know, do it. <laughs> so, um, because the, you know, the, the, the priests, and the, the parish and the bishops uh, and the, the papacy, actually, they are vulnerable uh, they're vulnerable to pressures, uh, to um, uh, attack of all kinds, uh, legal attack, uh, you know, their property can be threatened, um, and so on. And actually, our salvation is not going to come from them. You know, they, they, they can't, I mean, they have proven, well, people have complained this for 50 years. Oh, the bishops, why aren't they supporting us? You know, why aren't they saying this? Why aren't they doing that? Well, the answer is very complicated. Why? Um, it's partly ideological, partly, you know, because of the pressure they're under. Well, anyway, we're not going to get help, not much help from that direction. Um, so the side of the church as a human institution, as a community, um, it, it rests on the family, unfortunately. Yes, absolutely. And um, and this brings up the, the other big overarching theme besides laity, lay people, lay family, and that's clericalism which isn't really implicit through the first section of your book, talking about the liturgical reform, but you come to define it on page 177, which is very helpful. As you say, clericalism is obviously the Holy Father has quoted or commented on clericalism quite a bit, but you define it on page 177. You say that clericalism involves the clergy impinging on the proper sphere of the laity, which is the temporal sphere as distinguished from the spiritual sphere. Can you help us understand especially for even traditional Catholics, it's, I think sometimes have a clerical mindset in terms of this spiritual, spiritual temporal. Yeah. Can you help us understand the spiritual temporal rulership of the church? And then the question is, do you think the clergy have come into, impinged on the, the family as, the, as a temporal sphere? What are your thoughts on that? Yes, well, uh, my, my, my thinking about this is, is something which uh, has developed a lot in, in quite recently. Um, one, of the, one of the things which, which influenced me uh, a few years ago was reading um, evangelical bloggers uh, complaining about the behaviour of their, their, their ministers. 
um, who intervened in the lives of the families in their communities um, in an extraordinary way. And I couldn't believe my eyes <laughs> reading the things that they did. And, and obviously, that this is from a tradition in which, oh, yes, we're, we're, we're a very strong community, and it's communities led by the pastor. Um, well, that's not right. That's not quite right. The pastor, the spiritual leader, uh, is a spiritual leader. He's not the temporal ruler. Um, and that's, 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 it, 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 we've lost a lot of temporal, uh, Catholic institutions, particularly since Vatican II, uh, and some of them went, you know, went south with the time of the French Revolution. But since Vatican II, the you know, lay associations, for example, uh, have kind of disappeared. So um, does that mean that the Pope is the head of the church? Full stop. Well, it, it, it's he's the head. He's a spiritual head of the church. He's not the head of the Christian community as a temporal leader, you know, that might have been something which the Holy Roman Emperor could, could lay claim to, and not the Pope. Um, I think uh, I mean, the example I use in the book, which is, I think is instructive, is schools, Catholic schools. So Catholic schools obviously are Catholic, specifically Catholic, uh, but nevertheless, they have a temporal aim which is the passing on of, of, of knowledge, <laughs> educational institutions. Now, education is not a supernatural thing. It's a natural thing. So if we take seriously the distinction which is made in Vatican II, um, and indeed going right, right back all through the history of the, of the, of the tradition, back to you know, the relationship between the Pope and the Roman Emperor, you know, the kind of right, right up, you know, time of Constantine, um, well, a school is not, something a catholic school is not something which should be under the authority primarily of the bishop or the parish priest it's it should be a lay institution now that's not to say that it's wrong for bishops to start schools well, that's obviously fine and if they found them then obviously and, and someone's got to look after their catholic ethos and maybe that was historically you know conveniently done by bishops blah 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 but as a matter of fact right now uh, it, you'd be much better off with a board of lay trustees in many cases uh, than than the vocal bishop. Um, lay trustees who appoint other people who are, you know, they have to be very careful. Uh, maybe this is a lesson we've learned by now. Don't just appoint some nice bloke who's kind of Catholic. Uh, <laughs> you've got to appoint someone who's really, really serious about, you know, about, about this institution maintaining a Catholic identity. Um, well, if, if you could do that, then actually you're better off with a board of lay trustees. And there have always been some lay Catholic schools, um, particularly in the independent sector uh, uh, in, 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 uh, in this country. Um, but there is a kind of assumption, I think, among some Catholics of the, you know, the, the, the immediate pre-Vatican II era, and which has rubbed off on... Catholics, traditional Catholics today, that you know, it's kind of right that the clergy be in charge of every Catholic initiative. Well, no, it's not. It might be convenient. It's, I mean, I'm not saying that it's kind of it wrong, kind of totally out of the question. Um, it might be convenient, but actually there are Catholic initiatives which are Catholic 
specifically Catholic, which are nevertheless not, uh, which, which are lay, uh, lay, lay institutions. So, um, um, as a matter of fact, I mean, the, the monastic, monasticism is not primarily clerical. It's not to do with the clergy. It's not to do with ordained uh, clergy. It's to do with men or women who are not clergy. Uh, one of the odd things you find in the in a kind of terminology is is this uh, attempt to kind of push religious into the category of the of the clergy, even though they're they're obviously not there. They're not clergy. They're not ordained. So right. They're not clerics. You you become a cleric at a certain point in the process of you know ordination, um, and that. That might or might not happen to a monk. If it does, it's incidental to his being a monk. And it certainly doesn't happen to female religious. Heaven help us. <laughs> so uh, the idea that kind of nuns or, or religious sisters are kind of you know semi-clerical, well, that's absolutely right. that's insulting. So um, that's an example of lay spirituality, if you like. Uh, monasticism. It's yeah, not what priests do. I, I think that the Vatican II very much has a there's a, somewhat of a clericalist under, undertone to Vatican II in that very definition, as you say. There's there's when it talks about the laity limigentium, it's kind of assuming only the people, the families who are in the world, and they're not lay rulers per se, or they're not monastics per se. Yeah. Um, would you say this makes me think of um, the entire uh, crisis of modernity, which we can date back towards the French Revolution and and things like that um but the the papal office begins to churn out encyclicals especially under leo the 13th um while the family is already strained by the industrialization and all these social factors um and it seems to me that the the lay institution of the lay catechist i.e parents and the lay institution of schools as you say very much got swallowed up by a centralized magisterial office where Catholics themselves began to sort of rely more on the Pope as the primary teacher rather than the parents or subsuming that even before yeah. Vatican II. What are your thoughts on, on that? Well, yes, I mean, that, that, that chapter that you made reference to uh, that, that, that talks about this, the centralization of the church. So it's not just a matter of clericalism. It's also a matter of centralization. So it's not that, the clergy are exalted. Um, well, they are. But in addition to that, local clergy are turned into kind of mere functionaries uh, in, in, um, in preference to, to the, the Pope as being everyone's parish priest. Um, and that, that idea that the Pope is everyone's parish priest, obviously, that is, 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 a, is a catastrophe. Um, it's, it's destructive of the office of the bishop uh, it's a structure of the relationship between the, the laity and their local priest um, and the office of bishop of course is, is is something of dominical institution so that's not something we can typically leave aside that's that's you know, absolutely essential to the constitution of the church and in some ways vatican ii tried to try to restore that 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 idea um, but um in other ways of course it did the opposite so we have with the liturgical reform, for example, you have this kind of the, the, the greatest ever exercise of papal authority 
that the church has, I mean, it's seen in the entire history of the church. There's nothing, I think, remotely to parallel it. Something which affected every single Catholic in the Latin church in the most intimate way uh, was something which was just the, the Pope pulling levers in Rome and everyone else was reduced to a cog in this kind of machine. Um, and, you know, uh, and then there was sort of, to kind of add insult to injury, there's this kind of talk about, oh yeah, well, gonna, the bishops are very important in implementing reform. No, they're not. <laughs> no, they're not. <laughs> it's just, what, do you implement it now or in five minutes time? That's basically what, what their um, autonomy came down to. Um, oh, oh, and they have a role in, in approving local translations. Actually, they don't really. Um, right. The English bishops, for example, they wanted to have their own translation, but they were forced to have the same as the Americans and the Australians and the Canadians, which made it well, one of the reasons which made it problematic. Um, so, um, so that's that's. I mean, I, I do sympathise with the popes who did that. I mean, they were you know good and holy popes who were trying to combat you know serious problems. Right. Um, but it's a it's it's ultimately it's not the solution. Ultimately, the solution is 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 to reinvigorate the church from the grassroots. Um, and that's something which in previous centuries have been done, for example, by the, by the orders, uh, you know, the, 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 the friars and before then the monastic orders, um, you know, with papal approval, uh, going out into the world and at a local level, reinvigorating spirituality, preaching, doing good works and all those sorts of things. Um, and somehow that wasn't happening in the 20th century or not enough or not the way that the popes thought was sufficient um and we've got to do something different now yes well i i and th this brings up a, another crucial piece of your book in which you talk about the importance of patriarchy yes and and you're 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 distinguishing between the feminist critique of a puritan form of patriarchy which is really just a corrupted protestant heretical version thereof and the Catholic patriarchy, which is fundamental to the lay order, obviously. Um, and I, I often say it's easy it's easy to be angry at clergy, but many of these clergies came from a feminized family where there wasn't even a patriarchy. And so there's sort of a lay causal effect there. So tell us about what is the importance of patriarchy? Why is this so important that traditional Catholics defend patriarchy? Well, I, I think that well, one, for one reason, one thing is I, I think that we've got to recover those doctrines of the church which have been forgotten. So the patriarchy is one of them. Uh, another is uh, nulla salus. Uh, another is um, uh, usury. Um, I'm not going to go into those because they're far too big um, and I'm not even qualified <laughs> to talk about them. But I think the idea that the church can simply kind of say, oh, this is very important and have kind of definitions by general councils and endless papal and own oh actually no let's forget about that after a thousand years i'm sorry that's just not if you take that view then the church is finished the church has lost the promises of christ somehow um so the headship male headship of the family is something which the church has always taught in fact i mean, i found a, a quotation um on this from john the 23rd so you know it was there uh, alive and kicking in 1963 so you know this is the the, the, the memory holding of this has 
been very, very rapid. Uh, and now uh, you'd be kind of cancelled for even mentioning it. Um, and yet there it was. So it, these obviously needs to be explained uh, in a kind of sensitive way. But we can't just forget about it. I, I, that's just, you know, that's not an option. So um, so that's one reason. I just think it's, it's, it's because the church has always taught it. So uh, the other reason is that, especially in the context of the importance of the family today, We've got to get the family right. We've got to understand how the family works. Um, and the modern family, if I can use that expression, doesn't work very well. Uh, so the modern family is characterized by serial monogamy, um, uh, divorce or, 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 or not people, people not getting married at all. Um, children passing between different parents, step-parents, and so on. Um, and it's it's a disaster. It's a disaster from the point of view of child-rearing. It's an absolutely terrible environment in which children should grow up. Um, now, it's very, very important in talking about this to um, not to allow people to, 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 to say, as, as they will do their best to say, uh, well, here's a kind of a car caricature of you know, patriarchal family, every bad thing that you can imagine, you know, wife beating and heaven knows what else. Um, and if anyone who mentions that word beginning with P, then that's what they're in favour of. Um, and that's bad. And that person should be kind of drummed out of town and not allowed to, to, to speak again in any context. Well, obviously, that isn't what it means. Um, and part of the recovery of a correct understanding of headship is to disentangle it from uh, what I call a, 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 a corrupt, Protestantized uh, version of it, uh, which came to the fore in the context of industrialization. So industrialization made a huge difference to the family, um, and it wasn't the fault of the family members at the time, obviously, but they were in the grip of these forces. Um, so industrialization meant that oh, women no longer made an economic contribution to the life of the household. I mean, to put it in the very stark terms, they always had. They'd always been there helping the husband in his work if he was an artisan, uh, working on the farm, uh, making you know, lace or fabric or whatever, um, going right back, you know, you can see this in Homer, you can see this in the Middle Ages, you see this in the Old Testament, uh, you see this right up into the 18th century, this is going on. Uh, people making lace, for example, women making lace um, in the 18th century. So um, the first thing to, to, to escape from is the idea that uh, a traditional conception of the family is one in which the women don't work. Um, and I'm not saying that women must work or anything either, um, but there's a lot more freedom. There's a lot more variation possible. There's a lot more um, uh, creativity in how the family can respond to different economic conditions than you might think if you're solely thinking of how the family's functioned in the 1950s. So, that's that's one thing. Um, another thing is is we just have to kind of 
put on one side is, is, is the question of you know, how were women educated in, I don't know, the 1880. Uh, well, why is that normative to the family? You know, what's 1880 got to do with anything? So, you know, after 1880, or possibly at that time, uh, women started getting degrees. Eventually, they started getting professional qualifications. And so, well, what happened before then? Well, the fact is that professional qualifications and the idea that you had to go to university in order to do all sorts of jobs, that didn't exist until the 19th century. There wasn't such a thing as a professional qualification for anything other than being a being an MA and the kind of things that opened opened that up. Um, so, um, you know, could women be you know, medics, for example? Well, yeah, and loads of them were in the 17th, 16th, 15th, 14th century. You, it, no one would have been surprised to see women as 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 um, uh, midwives or, or or going around the village. You know, helping people with you know herbal remedies or I mean it wouldn't have crossed anyone's mind to think there was a problem. It's only when you start getting medical schools and they sort of decide on the basis of a kind of 19th century conception of you know frivolous and irrational women and kind of rational men. Um that's not a Catholic idea. That's an idea of the of 19th of 19th century kind of attitudes to sex differences. So um you've got to take a much longer perspective, much larger perspective. Um, the Bible is quite helpful in this respect because because it's so it comes from such a different cultural background. Um, so the Mulia Fortis in Proverbs, she's making and selling things. She's buying property. Um, and, you know, she's not. Oh, yeah, she's a housewife in the sense that she's in charge of the household, but she's not some sort of downtrodden kind of, I don't know, domestic slave. And that's absolutely ridiculous. Um, I think that um, one of the things that you know, it's nice to do is to try and kind of help people to understand traditional societies a bit better and not simply impose our, our preconceptions on them. Yes. How that's going to work out in the 21st century is very much a matter for experimentation and, and, and local circumstances and the psychology of the relationship and what you're good at and, and so on and so forth. And one of the things that's happened for traditional Catholics is that, um, you know, since Vatican II, is, is, is homeschooling. Um, and in my experience, the homeschooling is primarily done by, by the wife because the, the men don't have the time. Yeah. Um, and that's an interesting development. Um, and that's not something that's set in stone. Uh, and that's not something which is, you know, God's demanding or forbidding or or anything. It's just one of those things that can happen. Um, because in the Catholic conception, women are not regarded as stupid, immoral, irrational, or over-emotional. <laughs> but there is, nevertheless, a division of labour. Uh, there are such things as, as and there is a there is a conception of 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 the the husband as the head of the family. Yes, uh, and uh, this is so important. I love what you bring out in disentangling that false patriarchy, which is feminism is just overreacting to a Puritan patriarchy. It's basically, um, yes. and the Catholic patriarchal model is really something that actually does protect and defend the dignity of woman 
and doesn't make her into the domestic slave. Uh, we, we've got about five more minutes. Um, there's so many as other aspects we could get into. Um, I love your empirical, uh, empirical evaluation of Vatican II. That was very convincing, a very convincing argument. You also bring in so much of the, the, the lay perspective on the liturgical reform. Any final thoughts on uh, your book, Dr. Shaw? Well, uh, um, well, I, I hope it's I, I hope it's useful to people. I think I, one of the things that I I, I spend a lot of time on the book is is, is a question of, of of liturgical participation, um, and that's something which I think we 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 all need to to work on explaining to non traditional Catholics, uh, both within the church and outside it. Uh, because they find it incomprehensible, uh, and I think that it's 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 funny because it's not incomprehensible to us. You know, we go along to traditional mass; it's all in Latin. We can't see some of it. Some of it's, it's completely silent, and we come away and think we say to each other, oh, "Wasn't that nice?" You know, and mm -hmm. that was really prayerful, or or you know, I really got a lot out of that, or I really needed that, or you know, people look at us and say, "What on earth? What on earth could you possibly have got out of that service?" Well, that needs to be explained. Um, they honestly can't understand it because they are in the grip of a conception of liturgical participation, which is based on sort of enlightenment understanding uh, or Protestant understanding of, um, of prayer, of what it is to, to understand, what it is to, to, to engage in something. And actually engaging the mass is more like engaging with the work of art, um, even if Warren made this comparison, looking at a, a beautiful picture in an art gallery, uh, or engaging with music. Um, and of course, sometimes it is, there is a musical element with mass. Um, it doesn't have to be words. It doesn't have to be words. And one of, one of, the, one of our great allies in this, uh, oddly, um, is, is, the, is the section on prayer in the catechism, the 1992 catechism. The section on prayers, when it came out, I remember everyone saying, oh, the section on prayers is really, really good. And it is. It's actually, it really is good. And they talk a lot about contemplative prayer as the highest form of prayer. And interestingly enough, they repeatedly make a comparison with the liturgy. Um, and I thought it's quite surprising. Um, but they, they, they keep bringing it back to the liturgy. It's like the liturgy. It's, it, it's, uh, and it, it is. And they're absolutely right. Um, so what we're doing in the mass is a form of contemplative prayer. And people say sometimes you hear people saying, um, oh, the laity, they don't really understand prayer. What they ought to be doing is kind of engaging in mental prayer and, and having sort of complicated ways of engaging in mental prayer. And stuff. Well, that's all fine. But actually. Attending mass is a form of contemplative prayer. At least it can be. And that is how most people. Most traditional Catholics engage in mass when they go to it, um, because most lay Catholics are not trying to follow it word by word. I've got nothing against people following it word by word, but that's something which is slightly different. It's a different kind of engagement. So the people who are just there, who are soaking it up, perhaps because they know it, the text already, they know what's going on. Um, that's in, that's contemplative prayer. That's mental prayer. Um, and you know, maybe you know. <laughs> Maybe we're not doing so badly after all, you know. Maybe this this idea that oh we're all missing out because 
oh, we're kind of formalistic in our prayers. Well, actually, actually, we're not so formalistic in our prayers. You know, the ordinary traditional Catholic laity don't only say formal prayers. They've also got this got access to this extraordinary kind of opportunity for contemplative prayer. Um, and something which uh, Brian Houghton, Father Brian Houghton, um, he, he said about the simple people, uneducated people who came to his masses um, in, uh, you know, East Anglia in the kind of 1940s, 50s, 60s. Um, and he said, look, these people, some of them, they are engaging in supernatural prayer. Actually, it's got to that level. You don't have to be a, a, a theologian. Actually, it might even help if you're not. Um, you don't have to, uh, you know, have to outward signs of kind of sanctity in order to just kind of allow yourself to be drawn up by the Holy Spirit into this act of prayer, which is the prayer of the church, is the prayer of Christ, the, 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 and to the Father. And it, reading his, you know, reading these descriptions, they say, well, it's obviously true. It's obviously true. Yeah, good people who make an effort in mass and have done for you know 20 years or something i'm sure they're engaging in supernatural prayer at mass and to hear some sort of progressive liturgists say oh no no that's all wrong what they ought to be doing is uh saying it in english and kind of taking part and shaking hands and holding hands and getting up and sitting down and all this stuff and they're taking the gifts up no None of that's important. I mean, you do those things if it, if it, if you like, you know, do those things if it floats your boat. But that is not what it's about. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, what what your what your first section of your book really brings out so powerfully with many, lots of data from sociologists and and sort of an anthropological look look and and many testimonies from the lay people and as you said, Brian Houghton, is that. There's the clericalist mindset of the liturgical form is sort of that the clericals pray, the cler clerics pray like this and the lay people pray like this. And the lay people's prayer needs to change and become like the clerics prayer or else yeah. it's not there that that good. And, and we just get to force all the laity to pray like the clerics or else what yeah. they're praying is, is not that good. But you bring out in your, in your book so well that that it's this clerical mindset and that's and some some catholics still have even trads still have that mindset i think uh to not gauge in that so anyway so we're all out of time but everyone go buy this fantastic book <laughs> this is uh a, a very good addition uh liturgy family crisis of modernity joseph shaw uh thank you so much for writing this we look forward to your your next volumes dr shaw which we'll definitely promote here with that let's offer it all to our lady uh, under her Russian Catholic icon of Fatima, which we're promoting. This will be available soon, uh, which we're, we're going to be releasing through uh, one of our allies here at 1 Peter 5, but we'll invoke our uh, patrons as well. One of them, the, the last uh, emperor of Austria, Blessed Emperor Karl. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Fatima, pray for us. Blessed Emperor Carl, pray for us. Saint Maximilian Kolbe, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. 
Amen.